Welcome to this week's edition of the NinersNation.com Better Rivals Podcast. My name's Oscar. My name's David. And this week, David is alive indeed! The Lazarus himself has returned. David's not dead, despite our best attempts in San Antonio. <laughs> David, what happened, buddy? How come we had to push the podcast back a day? I mean, some things happened. Uh, there, there was some alcohol consu- consumed. Um, as you can see, I'm not really like fully back yet. We had some bachelor party activities happen um, early in the week, which is you know an odd choice, sure. Um, but hey, well, it was around it a basketball happens. game. I mean, we went to yeah. go see the world's right. most boring basketball game uh, of the Warriors versus the Spurs. Hey, when these plans were made, it looked a lot better. Okay. It did. It did. And then you know the three All Stars are out. Draymond gets kicked in the dick. And all of a sudden, you've got Lamarcus Aldridge just dunking on people. But basically, the the shortened version of what happened was David consumes a lot of alcohol and starts drumming to every 90s song known to man, air drumming, uh, in the Airbnb. The best kind of drums. The best, exactly. The best kind of drums. Uh, and eventually, at some point, we see him basically slumped over in a chair. We go to put him in bed. And as soon as he lays his back down on the bed, he gets up and he's like, I'm about to throw up. And that's, I mean, he's true to form, though. Oh, he hashtagged his super drunk tweet uh, from his bed, and he was out. Off like a light. Uh, vomit ensued. And here we are two days later, and David is almost recovered. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's, I'm just going to have to take your word for most all of that, um, <laughs> because I have no recollection of basically any of it. So, fun times. So, David Lazarus's podcast is going to be the beginning of our draft coverage, because it is indeed time to talk the NFL football draft. This is the first of six, count them six, total draft prospects leading up to this year's NFL draft. But before we get into that and our slate of draft coverage, let's get to the quick rundown because had some interesting tidbits come out of 49er land. Number one, John Lynch confirms the worst kept secret in football. Kirk Cousins was definitely option number one at quarterback this offseason. And while this isn't really a surprise, it is definitely interesting to hear him say that Kyle Shanahan had his heart set on Kirk Cousins coming to the Niners. It was very odd for him to say, like, uh, he's, I believe, like, the direct quote was, he was in mourning, yes. right? For for a period of time there after they got Jimmy, and it really took uh, a time. I mean, it was all kind of funny, and it sounded like almost like some Bachelor quotes, right? About yeah. how he's, like, trying to battle between these two women or something. Um, yeah, very strange for him to kind of come out and say it. I mean, obviously, they've said what they need to say about Jimmy by paying him uh, an absurd amount of money and committing to him for the long term and all those sorts of things. So there's no reason to like be worried that something's going to happen going forward. But it's just still like you didn't have to say really any of that, right? Or you could have just said, "Yeah, sure, we were interested in Kirk Cousins, of course." But then plans changed, and here we are. You know, you could have kept it a little bit more vague. Uh, so it was it was just weird to hear Lynch be that forthcoming with that situation. The other thing about the interview, or this wasn't actually this interview, but it was a, another podcast with Matt Mayoko that I would recommend anyone go listen to. It was one where he had both Senator Weston Richburg and former Senator Daniel Kilgore on, on the same show. And Kilgore was equally as forthcoming and equally honest. And it was really, really sad to hear Daniel Kilgore talk about not being a 49er anymore. And as far as I can surmise, the, the order of events was that Daniel Kilgore thought that Weston Richburg was on the Niners board, which he was, but he thought that he was there as a left guard, gets told he gets signed, then gets told by Shanahan and Lynch that he's actually going to play center and that Kilgore is going to get traded or released. Kilgore admits to shedding tears at this point, And then eventually Shanahan and Lynch say, but, you know, we're going to try and find the best situation for you. 
Pouncey gets released, he gets traded to Miami, and now, of course, Kilgore's reunited with Frank Gore. But you can hear the absolute sadness in Kilgore's voice and tone when he's talking about this. And even at the beginning, when Mayoko says former center Daniel Kilgore, Daniel goes, man, that's that's tough to hear, former 49er. Like, it, dude, it was heart-wrenching. It sucks. It, it sucks to hear. I mean, I haven't listened to the podcast yet. Pretty much everything that I've uh, heard about it has come from you, but it's it sucks to hear. I mean, you know, that's a kind of a part of the game that we especially don't really get into all that much, right? I think it's easy to kind of um, forget about that stuff when you're really focusing on like, okay, what does this mean for the team? And you're really coming at things from uh, a very team perspective, right? When you're you're trying to figure out what the, if, if these moves are good and bad, but uh, it's easy to forget that like, Hey, these guys are, again, they're people like Kilgore's been with the Niners his entire career. Uh, I'm sure it has like a lot of close friends. I know he's super close with Joe Staley. Like it's a shitty situation to find out, like expect to be in a spot and then find out that you have to pick up and kind of move everything and go across the country and be with this different team in this environment that you don't know. Like, I can't imagine that's like a super fun situation to be in. Well, I definitely recommend that if you haven't picked up or listened to that Mayoko podcast, go do that at some point over the course of the week because there's some really good information and I think it gives you a good appreciation for the type of person that Daniel Kilgore really is. So let's get to the free agency roundup, though, because we did sign some other folks after our last podcast, two of which we're going to talk about here. One is uh, another, like climbing the names of the all name, uh, climbing the ranks of the all name chart for us. I think John Lynch signs these players specifically to poke fun at us. Yeah. But it's Jeremiah Atauchu. Is that right? Did I get it right? A-T- Atauchu. Atauchu. Yeah, yeah, I don't know. I think we'll, that's right. We'll figure it out. But basically, Jeremiah Atauchu is the next man up in the edge carousel. He is sometimes listed as a 3-4 outside linebacker, but he definitely played with his hand in the dirt more often than not. This past season, he only played 59 snaps, uh, but 36 of those were at defensive end, where he was lined up, hand in the dirt, outside the tackle, in more of the traditional role that you're going to see right now. And I mean, frankly, this is a player that is, it's a one-year prove-it deal. It's its that bargain bin kind of player that we were talking about in our free agency review. And this is the player that you hope gets back to 2015 form because that's when he had his breakout year. But if he doesn't, it's a one-year deal and we're none, we're none worse the wear if he doesn't. Right. It's I think especially once you get beyond that first wave of free agency, right, you're looking for all the top players are gone for the most part, right? Unless there's kind of some unique situation uh, going on. But largely you're to those kind of bargain level players. And so what you're searching for uh, is players that have some semblance of upside, right? Whether it's a young player, a player that's hit a low point in value because he spent a year injured or he had a down year or something like that, right? Something where you have an opportunity to get a player um, for less than maybe he's worth. And it's a very low risk, high reward type of situation, right? Because they're not paying him a lot of money. If he comes in and doesn't do anything and is cut, you know, before the start of the season, cool. Like they're going to be fine. We're, we're barely going to remember that this happened. Um, However, if he comes in and and he's able to kind of get back to that uh, 2015 season where had 46 pressures on 400 pass rush snaps, like that's a, a valuable rotational player, right? He could be somebody that actually comes in, has somewhat of an impact, maybe fills that Elvis Doomerville type of role and takes out, takes over some of those snaps that we're going to be missing from him. Um, so that's kind of the upside. But again, there's there's not a lot of downside to making this type of signing. Yeah, I think this player, if you're looking for his profile and how he fits, this is the player that I think the team is earmarked to replace Elvis Doomerville. 
He had his breakout year in 2015. In that year, he notched seven sacks, but only had 46 pressures on 402 pass rushing snaps. For context, that same exact year, Aaron Lynch had 62 pressures on fewer snaps, on 344 pass rushing snaps. So this is a player who's flashed like just about as much as Aaron Lynch, and Aaron Lynch is on his way out, and this guy's kind of on his way in. So I think we replaced the thing that we brought in with something that we just wasn't part of the regime that was Lynch Shanahan, and they wanted to try something new. And I totally get that. And I think when we talked about Aaron Lynch specifically, we said, we think you, this is a player you could probably resign, but we would totally get it if you wanted to move on and just try something new. Right. And I think that's what the team is doing here with the Tauchu and swapping him out for Aaron Lynch and maybe even Elvis Dumerville. This is a player that was relegated to a backup role when Joey Bosa and his sack train came to town. And and so this is just a player that has, again, you're getting him at a low point. You're getting him when he's sat behind two really good players in Melvin Ingram and Joey Bosa. And you're hoping that he can return to that 2015 form uh, because, you know, he's he's flashed a couple of times, even if I wasn't super impressed with what I saw on film. Um, but you're hoping that you get the best of him. Yeah, I think that's the, like expectations should be low, right? He hasn't played a whole lot recently over the past two seasons. Um, there's never really been sustained production, right? That makes you think that, yeah, that we're going to get like a quality player that can come in and, and be in this rotation. Like, yeah, there are enough things there to like that you're willing to take a chance on a guy, but expectations should mostly be low. And, and hey, if it works out, all the better. Yeah, I went back and looked at his sacks in 2015 because he had seven, and a lot of them were like second effort or cleanup sacks where yeah. just break the pocket, break and tain. They weren't, I'm going to beat my guy with speed or speed to power. And, and so it wasn't, it wasn't like I was super impressed. And then I looked at his pressure numbers, and his pressure numbers weren't all that great. And and we know from anything this offseason and even from last season that pressures predict sacks more than sacks predict sacks, as the PFF podcast would love to say. So, you know, it, it's not something that I'm expecting a ton from. But, hey, again, had talent. Hopefully he turns he turns around and does something with it and, um, you know, low expectations, but hope for the best. And I think we're in a similar position, right, if we go on to the next signing here in Jonathan Cooper, where very similar type of scenario, Cooper um, you know, maybe has you're, you're thinking has a little bit more upside because he's the high draft pick. And so you're kind of assuming that there's a little bit more talent involved there. But it's the same sort of idea, right? It's a guy that never really met expectations. He's bounced around for a, a couple of teams now, um, has very low value at this stage. And so you're able to kind of take a chance on this player who you think might be a fit for what we do. And I think he is kind of a better fit for a zone blocking scheme. That was something that Dallas, you know, uh, last year, they're a heavy zone team as well. They use zone runs on uh, just about 66% of their runs, which was the fifth highest. Also heavy outside zone in that third highest and outside zone right behind the Niners and Falcons. Um, so he, you got to see some film on him last year of him doing things you're going to be expecting him to do now. And that's really all it is. It's, Hey, we, we know we need some help at guard right now, and we don't have those positions solidified. So we're going to bring in, uh, you know, a bunch of bargain options. I'd be surprised if they don't toss a draft pick or two into that mix. And then let's just see who's kind of left standing by the time that we uh, are ready to start the season. Two things jumped out at me when I was looking at some of Jonathan Cooper's both stats and film. One was that his pass blocking efficiency was 35th in the NFL at about 96.3%. That was actually on par with Brandon Fusco who was just a couple spots above him at 32nd in the NFL at 96.5. So he, at least in terms of pass blocking, doesn't, doesn't do much worse 
than Brandon Fusco. So you're looking at, again, swapping one for the other when much in the in the vein of a Tauchu where you're kind of going somewhere else to see if you can maybe hit on that upside pick because you know exactly what Brandon Fusco is. Yeah, and he's never been like, even if you go back and look at his previous seasons there, um, he's never been really like, horrendous as a as a pass protector right at least in terms of just the pure pressure numbers um you know has a year in there 2015 was the year that he had the most playing time gave up uh 22 pressures but they were mostly all hurries right so only one sack two hits in that season um so hasn't been awful i mean look he he hasn't been like great in, in really any phase otherwise he wouldn't be in the position that he's in right now right he hasn't consistently been good um but yeah you can see what they're looking at there that we think we might be able to work with this. We think we might be able to bring him into a scheme and a situation that can get the best out of him. And again, if it doesn't work out that way, then fine. They're going to be able to move on and and be okay. This season, Jonathan Cooper gave up 20 total pressures over the course of the year. He didn't start until I think week four. And so it was, I think week four through week 17, he gave up 20 total pressures, but six of those pressures were against the Los Angeles Rams in his first week. Someone who, uh, and that's, of course, if, if the alarm bells haven't rung in your head already, that's Mr. Aaron Donald territory. And yep. so, <laughs> the, you know, we, we, Corey Peters is, you know, going to have a little bit harder time, I think, against Weston Richburg than he, did, than he did against Daniel Kilgore. But maybe Aaron Donald might have an easier time against Jonathan Cooper than we would want. Along Look, the man, there, there ain't many people out there that are doing a whole hell of a lot against Aaron Donald. So like that one, you're going to, you need to come up with another solution. If your answer is like, yeah, we're going to find a guard that's going to one-on-one block Aaron Donald. Cool. Let me know how that works out. Yeah. I think the the definite strategy for the 49ers is going to be, yeah, whatever the guard is plus Weston Richburg. Right. We're going to throw lots of bodies. Hell, maybe we'll like run a back through there and chip him. Like, yeah, you get, you get to just do different things, right. To take advantage or to try to slow down Aaron Donald. You're not going to get a guy in there that can handle him. Yeah. Fun fact, use check in its original Polish means chip block. <laughs> so let's get to the uh, the draft primer. Let's get to the beginning of our draft series of podcasts. And much like we did with the roster evaluation and the free agency preview, not looking for a coach or looking at all the coaches that we want to hire after we hire a head coach Hooray. affords us some time to go deep into the different areas of the offseason that we really care about. And now we turn our attention to the NFL draft. Our goal over the course of these next six episodes is to work towards a plan of attack based on team needs and our own kind of vision for what the team should do based on what we know helps win football games. And so what we're going to do in this episode is we're going to give you more of a draft primer that's going to help set the stage for both the positions we're going to look at, the types of players we're going to look at, and what we and why we think the teams, the team should draft the players that we'll eventually recommend. Uh, we we've we've gotten a lot of draft questions over the course of the last couple of months, and our stock response is ask us in March. We're getting there. Yeah, because <laughs> we we haven't made up our minds about the best players or the types of players or the rounds in which they should be picked in because it takes a lot of time to to watch film, to make your mind up and we may even change our mind over the course of these next six podcasts and what we think they should do or what we want them to do. Sure. So what we're hoping to do is start this journey, take you on this journey with us and hopefully at the end of this right around draft time come up with a plan of attack we think the team should do that is kind of you know, where we've shown our work and explained our thinking over the course of the next six weeks. Right. Absolutely. I think if you have two takeaways from this episode, it's one, you should hopefully have a better idea 
of what we're looking for in players just generally. And, and this obviously applies to the draft, but I think most all of it extends to just looking for players in general, right? And trying to evaluate players, um, even players on the roster as we're going through the season. So these are all things that we kind of factor in. And then also just kind of a, a kind of broad idea of what this draft class looks like. I mean, some people will kind of already be there, right? If you've been following along with draft content um, since the college football season was actually going on, then cool, you may have a, a decent idea there. But we want to just have a, a very broad idea. What are the strengths and weaknesses of this class? And, and kind of what does that tell us about where we want to start looking for solutions for the 49ers this season? So let's start at the beginning. Let's start, let's start at what we are looking for in draft prospects. And the first thing is going to be all about athleticism. It's going to be about that athletic profile. If you've listened to us for a while, you know that we are fans of composite athletic scores like P-Spark that really give you a full picture of a player's athleticism. And, and we go to a tweet from Zach Whitman, who is the guy who put together that Three Sigma Athlete website that has a lot of the, the P-Spark numbers. And he's got a tweet that I think sums up our thoughts on athleticism in general. But it's that not all good athletes are good players. Very few poor athletes are good players. Most great players are great athletes. And that pretty much sums up where athleticism fits into this whole idea. It's that you want to increase your chances of hitting on a player. And to do that, you generally want to pick the athletes. It's a tool, right? And, and all of this stuff, and, and I think the, the thing that you'll find is, we, is you're looking at all of these different tools and you're trying to kind of fit them together to build this one uh, evaluation of a player, essentially, right? And so with the athletic profile, yeah, nobody's saying that just because they have the number one P-Spark score at their position that they're going to be the best player and you should draft them. What it lets us know is it gives us a guide. Like, okay, if he's a really poor athlete relative to the other players at his position that are doing the things that he's going to be asked to do, like that should be a concern, right? I should have kind of a red flag there about that player's athleticism and whether he's going to be able to hold up at the next level. By the same token, most all, again, it's that most great players are great athletes. So I think this is really key at the top of the draft. The top of the draft, you're really trying to focus on, uh, or you're hoping, right, to get these like big players. They're going to have a big impact for your team and, and really be significant pieces for you in the future. And so you have better odds of finding those players if you're looking at great athletes, right? Uh, again, there's other things that they got to have there to go along with it. But it just kind of is a is a good guide and a good framework to to start with. And I think we know based on the way that the 49ers have been operating since Lynch and Shanahan took over, that this is something that they value in their player evaluations. We can look back to last year's draft class. We can look back to uh, just very, here very recently with Jarek McKinnon. A lot of athletes have been very prevalent in, in their player acquisitions in just the short time that we've had this regime in place. So when you look at players, when you look at the Niners draft profile, you definitely see a strain of players that are incredibly athletic. And at times, the team will just go and look after height, speed guys. Adam Peters was also on Matt Mayoko's podcast, I think the week before, Richburg and Kilgore. And he was talking about Adrian Colbert. And he was talking about how at the end of the draft, they were, and these are his exact words, we were looking for a height, speed guy. That's exactly what he was looking for. He was looking for an athlete, and he finds one in Adrian Colbert because he has a positive interaction with him when he was going out and watching some other players at a pro day. And he had heard about him before after transferring to Texas, and he's like, hey, you know what? Here's an athlete. Let's take a flyer on him, 
And oh my God, all of a sudden you have this player that could be a starting free safety or at least push Jimmy Ward in that starting free safety spot. Not It wasn't just because he's an athlete that makes him good. It's because, sure. well, it's it's an indicator and you take one thing off the table and now you let him flourish as a football player if he can put all the other things together. And he did, by and large, put the other things together as, as a late round draft pick. You also have Justice Mosqueda who does great work for edge rushers and he does a lot of work talking about force players and prodigy rushers. And when he lists out some of the best edge rushers in the NFL, you think immediately these are fantastic athletes. J.J. Watt, DeMarcus Ware, Elvis Dumerville, Von Miller, Justin Houston, Alden Smith, Mario Williams, Robert Quinn. What uh, Sean Merriman, hell, what all of these players have in common is that they are very, very good athletes. They all rate really high relative to other players at their position in their athleticism. So when we're thinking about draft picks and when we're thinking about the types of players that we want to go out and, and target or we think the Niners should target, we're going to be looking at players that generally are plus athletes. And I think the another kind of key point there, too, is sometimes, you know, it's going to vary a little bit on the position. I think there are certain positions where, yeah, you just want a very good, well-rounded athlete, right? I think uh, edge is largely that type of position. I think cornerback is that type of position. Um, you know, tackle is a great spot for that where, and you can see this in, in last year's draft class, right? Solomon Thomas, uh, Akella Witherspoon, Matt Breida, George Kittle. These are all players that according to Spark were in the 94th percentile or higher relative uh, to, again, players at their position. So they are among the best athletes in the NFL at what they are being asked to do. I think Ruben Foster, we didn't get a chance to see his test scores. Uh, I think he would have been up there, right? He Even if it wasn't in the 90th percentile, he's obviously a very, very good athlete. But I think Trent Taylor is a player where you can start to drill down a little bit further, right? Trent Taylor didn't have a great P-Spark score, composite score. But if you think about what he's asked to do, right, as a slot receiver, it's changed direction. He doesn't necessarily need to be able to jump over the top of guys on vertical routes. He's not going to be asked to run by guys down the field on those deep routes. He needs to be able to change direction quickly and be able to separate from defenders underneath in that middle of the field area. You look at his change of direction drills. He was in the 80th percentile higher in all of them, in the three cone, the 20-yard shuttle, the 60-yard shuttle, had great, great scores there. And again, that's not the whole picture, but that gives me a pretty good idea that if he's doing that well, he's going to be able to separate from NFL caliber defenders if that's also what I'm seeing on tape and I think you said it right there because and Trent Taylor's a great example of this the guy went to I think Louisiana Tech right right he wasn't exactly going up against Clemson in a national championship game so you think to yourself and Louisiana Tech's not the smallest of small schools it's it's not say a Georgia Southern the which provided (laughs) us the starting backfield for 2018 (laughs) but it, it is not exactly top competition in NCAA football and so you think to yourself well We know that he is in the 80th percentile in these drills. That means I know he's going to do well uh, or at least perform at the base level we need to against NFL level talent or the player that we might scout from Clemson. And so I think that's a good starting point, right, to to kind of try to identify good athletes, players that we know um, are going to be able to compete with their peers, right, once they get to the NFL level. And again, this is something that we... Uh, have a really good idea that the 49ers value when they're looking for players. I think you move on to the next phase, and it's production, right? The next thing that you really want to look at is, did they actually produce when they were out on the field, right? And this is where you start to kind of get more into the tape a little bit. Um, I think when you talk about players at the top of the draft, especially, 
Um, I mean, it's ideal, right? Obviously, you'd always like to have players that are great athletes and have great production. But those are the ones usually going in the first round, right? High in the first round, especially. Um, they have to have shown that. When you start getting into first round prospects and you're you're kind of all what if, right? They never really put it together in college. They never really were able to produce at a high level. Like that's a big question mark, right? And that's something that can, should kind of push them down the board. But if all of a sudden they're being looked at as a top 10 player with those kind of concerns, you know something might be wrong. And I think it's important also to qualify that, especially for us, I mean, other people may have uh, different different definitions and, and kind of use this differently. We're not looking at box score numbers, right? Like, I think it's very clear that that isn't the best way to do it. I think that's actually the only thing that if you look at, like, tape people on Twitter, right, that are just, oh, I'm all about the film. I don't want to hear anything else. Or people that are just more heavy analytics and, and only show me the numbers, like the only things that 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 those two groups agree on is that the box score numbers suck. And those examples of box score numbers, you think of things like tackles for linebackers or just looking at sacks for pass rushers or overall pure yardage totals for every skill position player. They, they don't generally translate to success right away. There are a litany of examples of players that have uh, a high, you know, I think of A.J. Jenkins. Didn't he have over a thousand yards? Uh, his senior year in college and all of a sudden you know he's better at fishing it's not that the it's not that that number is again indicative it's just that it is much like athleticism a tool and for us when we think of what this this kind of score could look like and how we're going to help quantify this it's really going to come a lot of it's going to come a lot from pff data because while pff data is not perfect it's not the panacea it's not going to be the thing that solves all it is another great tool because it basically is a super informed opinion about a player's success on any given play. Uh, and that is a valuable piece of information to put with all of the other factors that we're going to consider. Right. It's about finding pieces of production that are actually relevant, right? The tackles number, like, right, that just a tackle alone tells me nothing about how good a player it is, right? It, did that come... 15 yards downfield because he like screwed up his gap assignment and then had to play catch up and, and chase this guy down. Like, did it come in the backfield for a tackle for loss? Right. So there's just with a lot of those box score numbers, it's missing a lot of context, which as you'll find is, is a very kind of key part to all of this that we're looking for is really trying to apply as much context as possible when looking at these different players. And it's not just going to be an overall PFF score. It's going to be things like pass rushing productivity or the number of missed tackles or yards after contact. It's going to be things that are indeed production that help add context to someone's lack of production, maybe in box score numbers, or that explains why it is that they were you know, second or third in college football at doing something very, very well. It just helps build a complete picture for what a player is and how we think they're going to project to the NFL. Right. And then I think the other part of that film evaluation, right? So because production, like a lot of that stuff that you're gathering, yes, you, you can get numbers there, but it comes from watching film, right? You're not going to be able to get those type of numbers and get that type of context without watching games. So you have the production side of it, but then you also have uh, traits, right? Which essentially, whenever you're talking about the draft, you just can't get around that you're going to have to do some sort of projection, right? They, they were taking players that are playing at a lower level and, and trying to figure out how they're going to do once they get to a higher level of competi uh, competition. So things don't always, of course, translate directly there. So you have to start looking at uh, certain traits that these players exhibit, right? I think each position has some certain things that, you know, we're going to focus on that 
uh, tend to tell us what type of player that is, right? If they exhibit these particular traits, you think of an edge defender, right? If I'm looking for a speed rusher, that ability to bend and corner around the tackle and get to the quarterback, right? That's the type of stuff that you're starting to look for there that can help you add that element of projection into what we're looking at with these players. Ultimately, we're going to be looking for where this player wins when they win. You've got to understand what a player can do well, and you also have to understand how that can help your team be better. Yes, you kind of have to know what that player's limitations are, right? But one of my biggest takeaways, and I know I've said it before on this podcast, but one of my biggest takeaways from the Scouting Academy is to start looking at players in terms of what they can do to help your team win. What can they do for you? Because it's very easy to pick apart what a player can't do. It's very easy to say, oh, this player can't bend around the edge, or oh, this player doesn't have any hands, or oh, this player has no speed. But then you, all you're looking for is you know, the Julio Joneses of the world, and they just don't come across very often. They just flat out don't. Instead, when we're looking at players, we think to ourselves, okay, where do they win? What do they do well? And that helps you figure out where a player fits on your team. Because sometimes what that player does well just isn't what you need. It doesn't fit your scheme. It doesn't fit your team. Maybe it's not going to be better than what you already have on your roster and what you already have locked up under contract. And so there's no point in acquiring that player. But maybe this player also wins where exactly you need. You know, we go back to Trent Taylor and, you know, the fighting hard hats, but (laughs) we needed someone in the slot that could separate in short area distances. And that's what was going to make this offense go. And all of a sudden, here you go. We think of Jarek McKinnon. Why did we zero in on Jarek McKinnon? Because his skill set, what where he won in the passing game and what he did well was a skill set that we thought the 49ers needed to make Kyle Shanahan's offense go. And all of a sudden, here you are. The team decided to overpay for him. But <laughs> at the end of the day, they identified a skill set that the offense needed. And they thought, this is where this player wins. So let's go out and get that skill. And then the final piece of that puzzle, right, of the, of the, the puzzle of the, what this player is going to look like, where we think we can do, is positional value. And I think this is something that's really important because it's, it's a spot that a lot of people forget. So everything that we just talked about, right, the athleticism, the production, the traits, that tells us the evaluation part, right? How good is this football player? And that's, don't get me wrong, that's very important. You need to know how good they are. That matters a, a large amount, but then the next part of that that is mostly ignored, I would say, by, by the wide majority of draft people um, is the valuation. So now that I know how good that player is, how much does that actually help me win football games, right? How valuable is that skill set? We looked at, the, again, they win in this particular area, right? I have to determine, okay, this is what they do well. How much does that affect my bottom line? Because at the end of the day, right, they're trying to win games, and that's what we want as fans, That's what they want is coaches and front office people and all that stuff as a team like they're trying to win. So you have to take this part into consideration because if you're not, you're just kind of cutting your team short and and not looking to find the players who can have the largest impact. So where are we right now? We're looking for athletic profile when it comes to draft prospects. We're looking for production and we're looking to add context to a lot of the production that you'll see rattled off in articles, or on the interwebs. We're looking for position-specific traits, and we are definitely taking into account positional value. And these, those are going to be the four things that we're going to focus on when we're identifying players. 
And this idea of positional value is one where we're going to dig a little deeper because we've made a reference to positional value before over the course of the last month and some change. And we think that we've gotten plenty of Saquon Barkley (laughs) questions and and whatnot. And so we're going to take a moment to talk about positional value as a concept and, and why it is that we think the things that we think. Because, you know, David said it really well, and we've used this framework before when talking about general managers and what general managers do. But ultimately, the the art of dra- of building talent on a roster all comes down to evaluation and valuation. Evaluation is, of course, you know, how good people are. And the valuation is, you know, how good how does that help you win football teams and how much you're going to pay how much it helps you win football games and how much you're going to pay for that. So how do we start then to determine that value? How do we begin to determine positional value. Well, you start broad. And at, at its core, you want to search for ways to score the most points. It sounds basic and it sounds fundamental, but oftentimes we get wrapped up in so many things when it comes to football that we forget the person who ends up with the most points at the end of 60 minutes is the person that gets the win. Like that's can confirm. Yeah, that's 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 official. That is official better rivals canon. And when you think about when you think about the lore of football, right, when Teddy Roosevelt intervened in the early 1900s to, you know, stop people from dying, you see football rules, you see football rule changes that set football on a course towards the forward pass. When you think of what football was in the early 1900s, people were dying left and right. You had 18 deaths in 1904. 18. This is incredible to me. I had, I had no idea that it was like this bad. Yeah, I mean, well, because... Basically, what you did was you had the Mighty Ducks flying V as your primary method of advancing the ball or stopping the other team. You basically put some poor soul, like the little drummer boy, at the front of this V, and you rammed him into a whole other mass of bodies. I mean, you're talking about par- like people being paralyzed, uh, ribs breaking and puncturing hearts. Like, it was bad. And this is what Harvard was doing. Like Harvard, Harvard and Yale were like, yeah, let's go ahead and play this game. Also didn't have the best equipment back then, as it turns out, either. Zero equipment. Right? <laughs> but yeah, so th- th- that's what the game was. And then all of a sudden, Teddy Roosevelt uses his bully pulpit. And he's like, yeah, see, th- the thing is, I really like football. And football's not going to be around if people keep dying. So we need to make the game safer. They legalize the forward pass. They make these rule changes that inexorably puts us on this road towards where we are now. It creates this environment where offensive uh, offensive coaches begin to innovate to try and score more points. So teams start taking advantage of these rule changes to score points, and offensive innovation takes advantage of a culture that seems fixated on running the ball. 49ers fans, more than anyone, should know this story and should know the story of Bill Walsh and how he basically tore through defenses in the 80s and 90s because defenses just were not equipped to handle the kind of passing offense that Bill Walsh was throwing at them. You also have, on on a smaller scale, how Mummy, you know, kind of over over uh, choosing to pass the ball, basically, and throwing the ball like 50, 60 times in an era where that was just unheard of because they, they discovered that you can find inefficiencies to score more points and eventually win more games. And so then you get to the television era, and football is all about TV, and rules begin to get changed again to favor the excitement of the passing game, and it further cements this environment where success in the passing game results in success in the win column. And we can tell that teams have, you know, it's it's been a little slow, granted, but teams have largely figured this out over time, right? And, and I think there's a couple of things that can tell us that. And, and yes, it is true that 
individual teams are going to get things wrong at times. There, there will always be specific examples that you can point to uh, as kind of the outliers, right, to, to the general rule. But as a whole, the league is largely kind of figured out that, hey, passing the ball is a little bit better for us. And I think you look at two things, right? One, just quite simply, the frequency with which teams throw the ball has gone up um, continuously since, I mean, basically, like mostly forever, but essentially like the, the modern NFL, right? Like since the, the merger, passing teams have been passing more and more frequently. And then two, teams are now paying players that have a larger impact on the passing game more than those players that don't, right? It's why quarterbacks are far and away the highest paid players in the league. It's why you see cornerbacks and edge rushers and these type of players command larger contracts than the players who are like the fullbacks or the run stuffing linebackers or the guard that can only run block, right? These players don't command a lot of money on the open market. And so that is another way of teams kind of letting us know, hey, we're going to spend money on what we think gives us the best chance to win. And that happens to be players who impact the passing game. So we've got two things working in this story that is, you know, kind of positional value is one, you've got you know, teams that are chasing points and trying to win games eventually take advantage of or find efficiencies in the rules in order to do just that, to score more points and to win games. And we know that this is happening because NFL teams are telling us that that's happening. They are paying positions that affect the passing game more and they're passing more often. So ultimately, then that that gets us to where we are today. And that gets us to the concept of expected points. And expected points is a concept that is really important and also really awesome, but it goes back to the idea of scoring points because at the end of the day, the team that scores the most points is indeed the team, the team that wins football games. So like what is expected points, right? It is a very quick definition. We're not going to get too in depth into the nuances of there's a lot of information that you can find out there um, that will give you that sort of information if you're looking for it. But I think very simply expected points looks back and says, Hey, when teams have done, this particular event, whether that's pass the ball on first and 10 or run the ball on third and four, they go on to score how many points as a result of that action, right? It lets us know, it assigns a point value to these actions. And why is that important, right? Why is that better than, say, yards, which yards have pretty much for a very long time been kind of the measure of uh, the, the value of a play in the NFL, right? But again, going, getting back to that context point, yards have no context. Yards are not created equally, right? I think a very basic example that uh, I, I can't imagine we'll get a lot of uh, disagreement is we know that five yards on second and four to convert for a first down is very clearly better than five yards on third and, third and 10 when you still end up having to punt, right? That's different. It's tougher to get two yards when you're when those two yards are to get you to the goal line uh, and score a touchdown than it is when you're it midfield, right? And we know that those yards are more valuable. Um, I know that if I cross the, the end zone, that is the most valuable thing that I can do. Whereas if I'm simply moving the ball from, say, my own 25-yard line to my own 27-yard line, that's not doing me a whole lot of good. So yards on its face takes all of those events and assigns equal value to them. Two yards is two yards. Five yards is five yards. No matter the down and distance, no matter the field position, no matter the game situation. So expected points allows us to add those bits of context, right? It, it adds some additional stuff that say, hey, when teams were in this exact situation that you're in, what did they go on to do after, after they're doing this you know, particular event? 
Um, the other thing that that really allows us to do expect with expected points is drill down a little bit further, right? Rather than just saying, okay, we know that passing the ball is generally better than running the ball. We can start getting into more specific events and finding out what actually is more valuable about passing the ball, right? Is it more valuable for me to be able to throw the ball to the middle of the field to a slot receiver, or is it more valuable to be able to get the ball to an outside receiver, right? How does throwing the ball to a tight end compare to throwing the ball to a running back? So you can start getting into these um, more specific kind of drilled down situations and really find out, okay, what players are helping my team win football games the most? Expected points is a lot of the kind of what should I do now modeling that you see on NFL Twitter today. When you talk about going for it on fourth downs, you're really talking about expected points arguments. You're talking about, well, if I go for it on fourth down, even though it looks like I should punt, I might just score more points. This is why generally you hear that NFL coaches should be a bit more aggressive because when they are, they generally score a bit more points. This is why the Steelers going for two a lot is awesome because by and large, it's you know it's it's efficient to go for two, and you get more expected points if you go for two over the course of a season than you would if you just keep kicking these extra points, especially now that they're a bit farther out and kickers might miss one in like fifty. So these these kinds of actions are great, and now we have enough data to be able to say yes, we can actually pinpoint certain actions that are a bit more valuable when you put them together in aggregate than we've ever had uh, the information to be able to see. And when you put that in context of everything else that we've been talking about, it's another data point. It's another piece of information that allows us to determine which players have the largest impact on helping teams win games. So when we go back to the idea of, well, should we should we draft you know someone like a Saquon Barkley or should we should we draft someone that isn't going to affect us in the passing game all that much or isn't going to affect us in the passing game as much as other positions, we can we can really drill down and and point to certain actions and certain things that aren't just like, well, we don't think a guard is is as valuable as a running back. We can say, well, on average, when this position fails, it doesn't really affect you all that much. Um, And and that's where we begin to, to rank players. And it's not just, you know, kind of the math that bears that out. It's also the market that bears that out in the NFL as well. Yeah. And again, it's a lot of that's to say like, and you may not care as much again about the details when I get there, but, Ultimately, this is just a lot of words to say like, okay, what play, which players help us win games more than other players, right? Which positions do things that help our team win football games more than other positions? And again, it's a factor that uh, for some reason, a lot of people tend to ignore, especially I think around draft time when you hear a lot of best player available, best player available, that's only factoring in that evaluation part, right? Saquon Barkley may very well be the best player in this draft at what he does from a pure evaluation standpoint. You're, you're probably not going to get too many arguments. No, n- nobody really is pushing him that far down, right? But the question is how much or how valuable is that relative to other players that play positions that are of more value, right? This, so those this is why everyone's losing their mind to trade up for all these quarterbacks. Exactly. Right? It's and, and this is why there may be four quarterbacks that go in the top five. It's not because, you know, they are all better at quarterbacking than Saquon Barkley is at running backing. It's because the fourth best quarterback, if he's any good, is still more valuable than the single best running back in the draft because they're what they can do for you to help you in games their positional value is just so vastly different that you want to go and get the fourth best quarterback 
before you would ever get the first best running back. Right. It's 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 a situation where even if it's you know even if it's the fourth best in this draft, if you feel like that quarterback can be an average or better starting quarterback in the NFL, right? So say like top fifteen, right above average. That is worth more to your team and is going to help you win more football games than if you knew, if you could guarantee, which you can't, which is a a very silly argument that I don't like to really even respond to because it just makes my brain hurt. Is like, what if you could guarantee that Saquon Barkley was going to the Hall of Fame? It's like, well, you can't. I mean, that's kind of a big part of the draft thing is that you nobody really knows anything and and people miss on these picks all the time. Um, But it's even if you could that 15th best quarterback is still helping your team out more than your all pro running back. It's just, and so ignoring that part of the conversation is just missing on a a large, large part of team building. Yeah. So ultimately when you think of all of the bits that go into the, the, our framework for what we think the 49ers should do in this draft, it's going to, it's going to start with the athletic profile. And we know that the 49ers as a team also value athleticism And so we're going to start looking at athletes and have that be one of the criteria that we evaluate with. We're going to look at production. And this is more than kind of box score scouting. In fact, it's the exact opposite of box score scouting. It's adding context by looking at other types of production that are important for evaluating what that player can do on the field. We're also going to look at positional traits so we can identify where that player wins specifically because we know in a world where you can't get a Julio Jones at every single pick, you have to be able to pick certain traits that will help your team and then draft for those specific items. And then we're going to look at the positional value. And we're not just going to blindly pick the best player on the board, but we're going to pick players on the board that also have value that ultimately help you win games because we are in a league right now where the your passing is king, passing is more efficient, passing scores more points, and ultimately helps you win more games. So we put all of those in a bucket, and that's going to be our framework for looking at individual draft classes or for, in, for the types of players that we should draft in this specific draft class. Now, the other thing that's going to help us filter down the players that we're going to look at is looking at the strengths and weaknesses of this specific draft class. And more specifically, looking at the, the well, because we're going to not look at quarterbacks because, well, we've got one, but posi- the positions of strength in any given draft can help you figure out where you maybe need to go and get players or maybe where you should avoid players altogether because you don't want to get the eighth best edge rusher in a draft class where there may only be like two draftable ones or two players that are going to be any good. So the strength of a specific class is also equally as important when you're thinking about players to target in the draft. Right. I think it, it, it's definitely something, a good lens to kind of look through, right? If, if you look back at the wide receiver draft, uh, was it the 2013 draft that had Beckham and, and just like the crazy amount of first yeah. round receivers, right? Like if you needed a receiver and you knew that that class was great, which again, I think the draft kind of community as a whole and, and even the league and stuff can obviously miss on individual players a lot. But I think as a whole, looking at the, the, the strength of the class as a whole, like usually you hear about those beforehand and people kind of, it's easier to come to a consensus there. They, again, you may disagree on the specific rankings, but okay, we can agree that wide receiver is pretty strong in this class or something like that. Well, I think last year's, I think, last year's cornerback class was a great example yes, of this. absolutely. Where last year, you, like, you, it was a consensus that the cornerback was pretty strong in last year's class. 
And the Niners did something that was interesting is they waited until the third round to get their corner. That basically, I would say that the argument there is this class is pretty strong. We can still get a pretty good player in the third round. And they did. They got Akella Witherspoon and he's great. He's awesome. He's an ascending player. He is, you know, a tier two player. We thought he'd be good. And sure enough, he is. And that's what understanding the strength of a draft will allow you to do because you can play it a couple different ways. You can either say, well, this is a pretty strong position. I can wait a little bit more. Or you can say, well, this is a strong position. I, I want to get like gonna... the top of this actual draft class because that's going to be the one that hits. So I want to ask you about that. So let's let's table that for just a minute and kind of give a quick overview, I think, of, of the positions in this draft and kind of where... Uh, we kind of see that they are right now and kind of what the consensus seems to be at the moment. Because, yeah, I think there are definitely some interesting ways. Like, once you have that information, there are some different approaches. And I don't know that one is necessarily, better like, clearly other. better than the yeah. other, but I think it's an interesting conversation. So positions of strength in this draft class, I think you're looking at running back is probably the top, right? In terms of best at the top of the draft, depth of the draft, uh, here right now. So looking at, so we'll, we'll kind of reference a few of the rankings from the PFF big board right now, which is the uh, top 100 players. And this is for context as of uh, bef- right before the combine. So I believe it's due for an update here sometime soon, but um, this is kind of where we're at. So in, in with running back in the top 100, they had 11 running backs currently set up in there. So again, a really strong running back class. You have guys obviously like Barkley at the top, but it's really a draft that you should be set up to get players day one, day two, day three that can come in and, and help your team out. You've also got the interior of the offensive line, which also has a very strong class. They are There are even a few that might even be with trying to tackle. People have even talked about Quentin Nelson moving out the tackle. Yeah. Uh, although there are many in the, the draft offensive line community that are like, why, why would you do that? Just put them in guard and let them dominate. But that's Again, forgetting about that positional positional value. value. Exactly. Um, and so interior of the offensive line, you've got 10 players in the top 100 and three in the top 25. Uh, and then you move on to tight end. Tight end, I think, is actually a good spot for the 49ers, especially, right? If you think about what they might want to add as a tight end, it's a good year to need a pass catching tight end, right? I think they kind of right now the mo on most of these guys, uh, especially guys that are going to be going in, you know, day one, day two time frame is that, yeah, they're good receivers. They could use some work with their run blocking. But again, we talk about what's most valuable, guys that can come in and excel in the passing game. Um, And I think right now, the 49ers at tight end, I mean, Kittle obviously has some upside there. But I think he's, uh, you know, kind of a very balanced player. They could really find somebody that can uh, line up in the slot maybe a little bit more often, something like that, be more of a passing weapon. I think that would be a good get for their offense. So then the other two positions of strength that round out this category are going to be cornerback, which is not quite on par with last year's class, but still pretty good overall. 14 players in the top 100 tied for the most of any position. And then you've got linebacker. This is a position that is good both early and in the middle rounds. So if those are the positions of strength, let's get to the positions of weakness for this class. It is a bad year to need defensive linemen essentially is where we're at. So good thing we drafted three, right? Got a lot in a row. Um, so I think, yeah, you start with edge, obviously being uh, kind of the marquee position there. You just have a class where the guys at the top, you know, the, the Bradley Chubbs, the Harold Landry's uh, Arden key. Like there's a lot of question marks with guys at the top, right? There's no like miles Garrett type prospect that everybody loves and is in agreement is going to be, you know, feels pretty good that, that he's going to come out and, and be able to excel. Like there's nobody like that at the top of this class. And then there's just not a lot of depth either. So you 
you you don't have a ton of opportunity to get guys after that initial wave goes. And then on the interior as well, I think you have a couple interesting players there at the top. I mean, Maurice Hurst from Michigan, um, since he's now been cleared, I think he becomes a very intriguing option. Vita Vea from Washington, again, another uh, player that's likely going to go in the top half of the first round. Uh, that, that's very interesting. But overall, you look at this class and it's a lot of run first players, not a lot of players that are going to have uh, a big impact on the passing game as a rusher. And then you get to the positions where you maybe just be somewhere in between and where they're not going to be strong. They're not going to be weak, but they're just, you know, they're the Goldilocks are right in the middle. Maybe um, you've got wide receiver weak at the top, but should have a number of solid players on day two. And later you've got 14 total players in the top 100. You've got offensive tackle better than last year's class where we saw just two tackles go in round one. But it seems like this might be the year for the 49ers to go after that replacement or heir apparent to Joe Staley. And it's going to become especially pressing uh, if Taylor doesn't work out. Yeah, um, it'll be interesting to see if they go tag. Right. I think this Taylor, is something sorry, that, Trent um, this is something that Shanahan has definitely like historically his teams have gone after tackles early in the draft. Right. It'll be interesting to see like. Okay, do you draft a year early knowing that Brown's going to leave or maybe knowing that or knowing that you're not going to re-sign Brown rather or knowing that maybe you want to have some insurance for Staley like I could see it being a year early for that but you know maybe they look at seeing some solid players in this class and and decide that this is the year they want to go grab one. I think I've just been asked the question about uh 100 Trent Brown sized Trent Taylors that now I just have Taylor in my head for Trent Brown at all times. Great question. It is a fantastic question. It's now the official, like, ask me anything question for the Fortnite or subreddit. (laughs) Anyone who goes in there is immediately asked that question. They asked Matt Brita, which I thought was hilarious. Excellent. Um, So, yeah. So let's get to the, let's get to the question that, that we were going to kind of pose earlier, right? Which is if, if you've got this draft class and you know that there, that there is a position of strength, do you go after that strength? Or do you know that you maybe can wait and get value later in the rounds? It's really tough. So I think a lot of that comes down to position of need, right? It, it, do the strength? If you have a situation where a position of strength in the class lines up with a need on your team and also lines up with a position of value, I think you actually like wh- something that I don't see too many teams do. But this was actually something that. Um, Jordan Plocker, I know, is like a big advocate of us. Uh, also, PFF guy he talked to us last year during our draft preview episodes, um, mentioned like double up, right? If, if this is a key position and it's a good draft for it. So like last year, if you were in dire need of cornerback help, go get two of them, right? Go get your first round guy and go get somebody in the middle round. So this would have been the advocate for like if you were the 49ers last year, take Marshawn Lattimore in round one and then still take a Keller Witherspoon in round three, right? Because I know I have a good draft. I can maybe get a star at the top because that's how good this, this class is. And then I can still get somebody who I feel like is going to come in and be a quality starter much later than I would probably be able to get that person in a normal draft, right? We talked about a Keller Witherspoon at the time being a player that like, yeah, they took him in the third round, but I think in a normal class, right, this is like a, maybe a late first, early second type of of player based on what he's done. And so I think that's a really strong argument. Um, one that I kind of like. I, I like the attacking a weakness, especially when it's, again, at that position of value. I absolutely love that argument. I think it makes a lot of sense. I think because the draft, because despite how well you prepare and despite how well you can kind of curate the the bonsai tree that is your draft board, it's not. It's still not going to be perfect. And you you have no idea 
what these players are going to turn out to be like. And so I do, I do think that increasing your chances, I mean, we talked about it with Trent Balky. We've talked about it. I talked about it in free agency where just because yeah. we sign, if we would have signed someone like a Malcolm Butler or even just because we've signed Richard Sherman does not preclude us or prevent us from drafting a cornerback high. I think especially at positions of value, you go and do that right away. I think though, when, and, and again, I think you, this is where comparisons across years become very important. This is where I really don't like the, I see him as a first round talent or second or third round talent. I actually don't like those designations sure. because, because of the relative positional strengths in a given draft class year, that may not mean the same thing. Definitely. A first round player this year may not be a first round player last year, may not be a first round player two years ago. So that round designation, I just think is kind of useless. What, what I think is, is a bit more helpful is to have a framework where you can compare players across years. And this is where you get into the kind of scouting services scores, where those scores mean something similar across years. And so you can say the top two edge rushers in this draft class do compare favorably to the top two in previous draft classes. But then after that, you've got a huge drop off. And maybe the third best player, we don't think they're, you know, we think that maybe they're, you know, comparable to other players that, that were drafted much later. I think if that's the case, if you have a scarce resource at a position of need, you've got to go get that scarce resource because you're not going to get very many opportunities to, to hit on that player in later draft rounds. So I think, I, while I love the strategy of doubling up, I think when, when you're thinking of something like cornerback last year, um, I think the Niners played it played it the right way, where they picked other players that you know they kind of needed in other areas, and and drafted Witherspoon a little bit later. Or no, let me take that back. They didn't play it right. They played it understandably, because sure. I think in that world it would have been better to go after Marshawn Lattimore. But we also have hindsight as something that kind of like I can't separate the two, right? Sure. Yeah, I, I think that's where it becomes you know kind of interesting, right? Is is so? Are you saying so? By going after with multiple picks, right, you're increasing the odds, right? The, the one thing that you can't necessarily, like, that you can get yourself in trouble with is this overconfidence of, I know which of these players are right. going to end up being good, right? So right. Uh, we may, again, I know generally I feel pretty good about this class and how it stacks up, but I want to give myself, because I know it's a good class, multiple opportunities to hit. Whereas, okay, if I go the Niner strategy last year, right, you go with an edge rusher, first go with a or a player you hope is going to be an edge rusher first and a cornerback later like that I think sounds good in practice but maybe like it's it's you're banking on having to hit those players at a higher rate than I think you you would normally I think the interesting is kind of the flip side of that actually and this is I think the situation that's most relevant to the 49ers in this particular draft is where you go when you're premium positions of need, right? So it, with the 49ers, the very clear one right now is edge rusher. That's one of the worst spots in this draft class. Um, don't when they don't align. So essentially your premium positions of need are at bad positions in this draft class, but the non-premium positions are the ones that are really good, right? So again, you look at those positions of strength, it's running back, it's interior offensive line, it's linebacker, it's tight end. Not, I mean, that's kind of like rounding out before you get to specialists, right? That's the bottom end of the positional hierarchy. Except for maybe tight end. Yeah, tight end. Well, I think tight end, there's an argument that it should be more valuable, but I don't think the NFL's there right now, right? No. You don't see a lot of tight ends. 
drafted in the first round, typically compared to other positions. They're not really getting paid super high salaries right now. Um, so I think, yeah, there's there's an argument there that they should be valuing more for sure. But I think that's where the 49ers find themselves, right? Like they they could, yeah, sure, they could use another running back. They can use a guard, absolutely. They could even use a linebacker. But do you go and in, in, invest those premium picks, right? The The round one, the round two picks on those spots because you feel like, okay, even though it's not going to have the value that I would like for those selections, this is what I feel gives myself the highest opportunity to hit on a player. Or do you take what's likely a higher risk, right? If you go edge in round one, you have to do that knowing that like this isn't a class where that's probably the best course of action. Yeah, I, I think this is where the idea of it being a strong, the idea of a position in a draft not being strong doesn't mean that there are no strong players or that there are no strong players to be found. This is where the idea of like of determinism becomes a bit like it's like uh, like it, it may not be a bad class, but let's say you know Harold Landry ends up being the best player, the best edge player, and you know you, he compares favorably to other edge rushers from other years. Um, but I think that's the argument right now, right? Is is and again we're going to get to edge plenty, so we don't have to do this totally right now. But the problem with Harold Landry is he's not that sure if I right. He's got a ton of questions. Sure, sure. So that's and, the kind of the the problem with these players at the top right now. Yeah. And, and I think this is where you really, this is where you really begin to get into that. The idea of what, what positional value is, 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 is an edge rusher like Harold Landry, who's got a lot of questions and maybe ends up being like decent. Is that better than a Quentin Nelson who could be an all-star guard? And I think everything that I know, at least right now, and everything that I, at least that everything I think I know, um, tells me that, you can get by with mediocre guard play, um, and the Niners did. And if you can get by with mediocre guard play, and and that's not a position that you need an all-star at, and that's not a position that a team like Carolina is going to pay a bunch of money to the best guard in football, right? You, you compare guard to you know quarterback, and you think, let's say you had a, a player that played quarterback as well as Andrew Norwell plays guard. That player is never leaving that team. There's right. no way in hell that player is leaving that team. Nope. But you think to yourself, Andrew Norwell can walk, right? Sutton, Sitton can walk, right? Yeah. Th- these players are allowed to walk because even if you hit on the best one, you're still not going to, you're, you're basically getting four years of production. And, and I think the more sustainable model is to find the players in the draft that you can continually get that hometown discount with because there is a hometown discount. There is absolutely a hometown discount. And you want to, perpetually get that hometown discount and you do that by getting the players at the position of need that you can then just pay you know a a decent amount of money to but it's still not as much money as you would need to pay that person on the free agent market and so i think that ultimately you still go after the premium positions because and maybe you do stack and double up i love the idea of doubling up and stacking because i think you give yourself more options right but i do think that that still ultimately is a more sustainable proposition over time than going after the Adrian Petersons of the world, even though you're guaranteeing that they're Adrian Peterson, because at the end of the day, Adrian Peterson still has like what one playoff win in Minnesota. Right. I, yeah. I mean, running backs, its own separate, like I don't even want to hear running back in the first round. Like I don't even want to hear that phrase yeah. if, if I had it my way. Um, yeah. I, I mean, I think it's interesting. The one thing that I feel very confident in is that kind of, uh, ultimate trifecta there, right? Where again, position of strength in the draft, position of need for your team, and premium position. Like if those things all align, 
I do feel very strongly about that it's best for teams to kind of go and attack that position and get multiple players and and give yourself a chance to hit on something that could be very good and very valuable, right? But I, I think after that, it, because the element that the draft adds in, right, that's a little bit different from free agency when you talk about the positional value stuff is the inherent, uh, like, unpredictability of yeah. the draft, especially relative to something like free agency, right, where you just have to know that, like, most of these guys, like, probably aren't going to work out. So it's this this extra balancing act that I think is there that that is interesting. It'll be It'll be interesting to see how this staff for the 49ers views this type of draft, right, whether they decide to go after kind of maybe some safer picks that it, non-premium positions that probably aren't going to have the impact just saying like, Hey, we're, we, you know, we don't feel good about any of these other spots and we're just going to go get guys we know can contribute in four, for four years. And then we're going to replace them, right? We're not going to ever give these guys necessarily second contracts because they don't do that, that valuable thing. And I don't know that that's, again, I'm not saying that's the best strategy, what I'd yeah. recommend they do, but I think it's an interesting conversation when you're in that position no i still want to i want to revisit this conversation when we get to the end of looking at the film and looking at you know kind of everything that we've done because i i'm you know i was thinking out loud about some of this stuff and i don't know that i'm settled on that for sure i know that there is some value in in obviously i know there's value in those premium positions but you know i just had a thought to myself where it's like well you know we've and i've said this before too great coaches do whatever they can to do well with good talent and so let's say we end up drafting someone like a Roquan Smith and he ends up being great. Well, guess what? I'm going to try and find a way to make like, you know, offenses pay for having both him and Ruben Foster on the field at the same time. We'll figure it out. You know, dude moves like a safety play him at safety, right? Like, like do something. I don't know, but sure. it, it, it is an interesting idea, you know, kind of what you do with talent um, and, and how you, how you acquire that talent. So, you know, I, let, let's ask that question again. Cause right now I yeah. lean right now, I lean, you know, just go after the position of value Especially because I'm thinking about you know those fifth year contracts and six, seven, eight, and, and beyond, and it's rare that a player stays on your team for ten years. But you want that player to be your left tackle. You want that player to be your quarterback. You want that player to be your free safety in a cover three or you know whatever the case may be. Totally. You don't want to you know even if you do find that player and he happens to be a guard, and I, you, it doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to give him that second contract. I mean, Mike Upati, right? Yeah, very very good player. Let him walk. Right. And I think I think it's more important, you know, kind of, I guess, final thought on it. I think I think it is more important with that first round pick. Right. I think you do have to be especially cognizant of value because you can say with a top 10 pick, you can end up where if you go with a position like running back or linebacker there where you're not getting any sort of value because that player immediately because those positions get paid so low relative to other positions um, those players come in and are immediately among the highest paid players, right? You look at Elliott, you look at Fournette, they're not getting any extra value out of those contracts. They're like top five paid players at their position, right? So that I think is is a thing that's difficult. I think once you get even into the back half of the first round and then especially day two, day three, those contracts are so low that I'm uh, that I'm willing to go, okay, like, I'm I'm willing to play to the strengths of the class at that point, right? Yep. If the strength is like, okay, I need to get a guard here, like, cool. I'm gonna get a guard. I'm not gonna I'm still not gonna pay him a lot of money. He's gonna be there for four years, hopefully, and then we can move on at, at that point. So I think the further you go in the draft, the more willing you can be to kind of bend a little bit there. Yeah. So there are a couple of things that we won't try and do over the course of the next six episodes. Number one, we're not gonna try and predict exactly what the 49ers will do. We're not insiders. We're going to focus on what the team should do or what we think the team should do. We're also not going to do a seven-round mock draft or try and do very many mock drafts, if any at all, 
because basically we're not look like we, we just don't care that much at this point or, or nor have the time to really get there, which is probably the bigger thing to talk about like guys that are likely yeah. to go in the sixth and seventh round. It's just not, it's not our, our forte. Yeah. So what we will do though, is we're going to give you five more draft episodes that are going to come your way next week. We've got options at number nine at non-premium positions. April 4th, we're going to have options at number nine overall uh, for premium positions. Then the week, uh, I'm going to stop using dates because I don't know how hungover you're going to get at one point. I mean, <laughs> I mean, fair, especially the one near your wedding. Uh, April 11th, we're going to talk day two and later options for offense. And April 18th, we're going to talk day two and later options for defense. So basically, the, the next four are going to be non-premium positions, premium positions at the top of the draft, and then day two options offense, day two options and beyond defense. And then the 23rd, we're going to wrap it all up, give you an overall plan, and then go on a bit of a hiatus because the reason David uh, had to push the old podcast back a day is because we're on a bachelor party, which means that the wedding is looming. So that's what we'll be doing over the next six weeks. Uh, join us. Come on this journey with us. It's going to be fun. Yeah. I mean, obviously, we've done previews. We've, I think, relied heavily on guests just because, yeah, in previous years, we haven't really had the time to get to it. So I think it'll be exciting to get a little bit better idea of what we're going to be getting out of these players beforehand. And, uh, you know, that should obviously help us out once draft night hits. Um, hopefully, we're, you know, again, we mentioned this before, I think, but. We're gonna try to do what we can to get some stuff out post draft. It's gonna be it's gonna be a little tough timeline wise. Wedding, vacations, honeymoon, all that kind of stuff happening right there. So um, what we will do as much as we can to get as much content as we can at that point. So thanks again for tuning into this week's episode of the Better Rivals Podcast. Remember to leave a review on iTunes or anywhere that you get your podcast because it helps other people find the show and it helps our rankings. Or at the very least, just tell a fellow Niner fan. Tell them, hey, listen to this podcast. And if you're not going to be of the review writing ilk, you can still spread the word for the Better Rivals podcast. So thanks again. And as always, go Niners. My name is Spencer Hall. My name is Jason Kirk. My name is Ryan Nanny. And when we combine, we form the, the Shutdown, Shutdown Fullcast. Fultron! I keep telling you, we're not Fultron. The Shutdown Fullcast is technically a college football podcast, but it's also a show about lawn care disasters, regional grocery stores we love, Tennessee Batman, homeowners associations, bears and video games. I mean, there's also some actual football discussion, like about coaches having huge contracts or coaches making terrible decisions or coaches saying really stupid things. Or the NCAA saying really stupid things. Yeah, there's lots of stupid things in this big, dumb, beautiful sport. Sometimes we talk about football games. Allegedly. If you want to take college football exactly as seriously as it deserves to be taken, come find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you listen to podcasts like this one. The Shutdown Fullcast. It's not Voltron.